Uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. One or two uh, house notices before we get going. Uh, may I introduce Rachel Mapson, who's going to do the signing, a very important part of the process that's often ignored. Please welcome her. <laughs> And can you make sure your phones are off? Um, the format for the hour will be, I'll introduce Janice. Janice will then read to, her, read to us. We'll have a wee blether, and then there'll be Q&A, and then I'll take her to the signing tent um, to sign many copies of her book. OK. Um, that's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a Scottish audience needs no introduction to Janice Galloway, uh, one of our most distinguished writers. But let me mention three of her previous books. The Trick is to Keep Breathing, uh, that won the Mind Book of the Year Award in 1990. Foreign Parts won the McVitie's Prize in 1994. And Clara, an astonishing book, won the Saltire Book of the Year Award in 2004. And if a heartbreakingly wonderful new book, This Is Not About Me, does not sweep up more prizes, I'll eat my mitre. <laughs> please, please welcome Janice Galloway. Hello, Edinburgh. I thought I was so prepared when I came and I've forgotten my specs. Okay, so you talk amongst yourselves. By the way, she's dressed for the part, she tells me. Yeah, they, they told me it was a Halloween party. I <laughs> she's going to the so Palliot Air, yeah. right? <laughs> well, the book is uh, partly set in the 50s. I was born in 1955. I should say I was born at the end of 1955, so I'm, in fact, a year younger than you think. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite important to know. Um, and uh, I, I suppose this is the closest I've come to saying this, this is actually based on things that happened to me. The book itself, however, and thank you, Granta, that's G-R-A-N-T-A, <laughs> not Jonathan Cape, as they said in The Scotsman today. It's Granta who's published this beautiful book for me, and it's a gorgeous edition. It's a lovely thing to hold in the hand. So bizarrely for me, this is the first time I've actually really looked forward to opening a book and reading from it in what I hope is a fairly straightforward fashion. It's sort of about me, but really it's called This Is Not About Me because it's not really either. And what that might mean or not mean, I hope will become slightly clearer. I'm not trying to be mysterious, abstruse or oblique. It may become slightly easier to understand why it's called that as we go on. I'll start with just a tiny bit at the beginning about the picture on the front. This is my family. We're ranged on a sofa and too close because the sofa is meant for two. It was the photographer's idea. That's my mother on the left side and my sister on the right. I'm in the middle, emerging from between the adult's knees. I'm the only one who's five. Maths renders my mother 45, but she looks older. Everybody did then. Her body is angled towards the centre of the picture, but her face is full-on, eager. Lipstick so red, it's black. Cora is the opposite bookend, and she's full-on all over. 
I can't account for the bruising on her ankles, but the shoes were from Corner Duncan's in the sale. They're proper stilettos with V-shaped toes, lino-puncturing heels. She wears no stockings, so her legs are pale grey and cloudy as marble. Her hair, however, is black. It's the blackest thing in a picture with lots of black. It was black to start with, but she dyed it with blue stuff, stuff somebody told her Elvis used, so it came out very black indeed. No flecks of light and sprayed to within an inch of freeze-dried. Her face is chalky and square, but her hands are lovely. They're a spare set of hands for somebody indolent, somebody like Zaza Gabor, until you look and see the tops of her fingers are darker than the rest. That's the fags. <laughs> no rings, though. For a number of reasons, rings weren't Cora's thing. Her armrest has two fag burns and an ashtray with a full strength on the lip, threading wispy ectoplasm across her knees. There was always a fag, there was always a fag burn, so these details make the composition evocative. There is a photographer present, but we are not at ease. Not really. But if every picture tells a story, we want this story to suggest we amount to something. We are, at the least, getting by in our best duds our bravest faces, we're trying our damnedest to look right at home. Which is exactly what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Plus ça change. Um, the beginning, the first bit, the, the book took me by surprise writing it. It was meant to finish in teenage years and then have a sudden shoot forward. It didn't quite work out that way. It finishes when I am barely 12. Um, and I thought it was, it was quite long enough by that stage. I discovered I knew and remembered and wanted to elaborate more than I had thought when I began. So we're at page 53 by the time I'm four. <laughs> um, this fits in with a lot of my preoccupations. And I dare say when I'm chatting with Richard or answering questions that you might care to ask later, we'll get to what they might be. But I'm fascinated by small childhood. And when, my, when I was four, my mother left my father for a whole variety of reasons. And this is where we moved to. I'm not quite sure how she found somewhere to move to. And this is me conjecturing. She must have done rounds asking. Maybe she went to the doctor to ask for pills the way people did and her situation had emerged. Maybe she cried. More likely, she didn't. She did not cry easily or for effect and couldn't turn it on as a device and still look fetching the way women sometimes do in films. But however the conversation had progressed, Dr Hart, a man my mother had always despised as a snob said the surgery had a wee box room. It was over the very building in which they were sitting, and at least it would keep the rain off. It would cost next to nothing, which was more than she had, but she could, he supposed, clean the surgery. My mother had been a domestic and a cotton carder. She'd been a clippy on a bus and a shopkeeper's assistant. Once she'd had a washing machine all of her own. Now she got a box room and tuppence to get by on, and she took it with open arms. If she wept at all, it would have been then. But she would have waited till she was outside. She'd have held her back stiff and got out with her face as intact as she could. 
over the heads of Dr. Hart, Dr. Carroll and Dr. Deans then, over the heads of sniffing, spitting, gurgling, limping, seeping hordes downstairs in the dungeon of the waiting room, we waited too. And when they were gone, when the big outside door was shut over, she came into her own. Fagash, fallen hair, cast off tissues, kidney bowls, big glass jars. She had to promise to keep me quiet, of course, especially during the surgery hours, but I was good at being quiet. It was the only thing I was good at. We were going to get by. So we left the house at Wellpart Road, a woman in her early 40s with a wane, no man, no national assistance and no prospects because all these nothings were better than being with Eddie. We lost my trike. What we acquired was a box room above the doctor's surgery, a two-ring hob, a sink, a divan, and no toilet. I remember the first day in there, my mother standing at the window, but she chose to look at the bright side. Ah, oh, well, she said, things can always get worse. <laughs> you can knock me down, step on my face, slanty my name all over the place. Do anything that you want to do, but ah, uh, ah, uh, honey, lay off of my shoe. I'm four, and I'm singing this under the table. You can do anything but lay off of my blue suede shoe. It's not a real table, it's just a chipboard circle balanced on legs, but under here, I can be Elvis. Look at this great radio, my mother says in a chirpy voice, I think I'll just test it. And she pretends to turn up the volume of thin air, and that's when I sing. I can do Hound Dog, Love Me Tender and Heartbreak Hotel. I can roll out a passable Doris Day, Connie Francis and Perry Como, and warble the refrains of Kesara Sarah magic moments in this old house with whole sentences intact. I know heaps of songs and a stack of singers, but none are a patch on Elvis. Elvis is the king. That's a great radio, my mother says. Jings, will you listen to that? The reception's terrific. You just get the best <laughs> programmes on this radio. I'm keeping this radio, it's great, this. And that's my cue. Doesn't matter if someone else is in there with us, hardly anyone ever was. This is the moment that counts. It's me, I yell, <laughs> bursting out from under the table, hopping, demented with four-year-old excitement. She does a stage look of astonishment, so good, I tell her the same thing again. It's me, I roar, a full confession. Me. You had to come in through the surgery entrance on the main street past a plate with the doctor's name in brass, then down a corridor and up the stairs. It was dark all year because the door at the back of the close was latched but the corridor, the corridor howled a gale anyway. The latch was brown and fat under the fingers with decades of layered gloss. Chips in the paintwork made it clear that those who had been there before us liked brown. They liked all kinds of brown. We had chocolate close walls, a tan stairwell, and terracotta on the sides of the steps. My God, Beth. My Auntie Kitty said on her one and only visit to the place, it's like an explosion in a shit factory in here. <laughs> and she was right. 
There was no stone or metal surface that hadn't been smothered in coffee, ochre, treacle, mud or manure. When the eyes became accustomed to the fudgy gloom, our stairs, their concrete edges pitted as millstones, emerged in a half spiral leading up to the rooms above. I say rooms not because we had more than the one, but because we had neighbours. They were on the left side, we were on the right. They were called the Mrs May. I knew they were sisters, they might even have been twins, but knowing anything for sure about the Mays was not easy. They had round specks and kept themselves fastidiously to themselves. They went everywhere as a pair until the elder Miss May had a stroke and then the younger Miss May went out hardly at all and my mother got their messages. Poor old souls, my mother said, polishing their letterbox because, like Everest, it was there. <laughs> God knows what will happen when one of them goes. It took me a while to work out that she meant when one of them died. They weren't going anywhere. <laughs> that to go was to die, said another way. Realising that made it clearer what she meant, but also much more disturbing, for no reason other than that they were quiet like me. I liked the sisters, but liking people didn't stop them dying, leaving, vanishing away. I kept my eye on their door, listening for the telltale scuffling sounds that meant they were still there and moving around. If they can hang on at their age, so can I, my mother said. She dabbed more brasso in a blackened cloth. We'll give it a try, eh? I watched the reflection of her face as she polished hoped the sisters wouldn't let her down. We had a sofa, a telly, a comfy chair, a fireplace, a fireside rug, and a mantelpiece with ornaments. The whole room was the size of storage for a mad aunt. It was somewhere for boxes, not people, but there we were, behind a doorway so low my mother, all five foot three of her, had to stoop to get in. We also had a tin bath, a radio, a hot water bottle, a chipboard plant table, a skinny tall boy and bits of bedding. The kitchenette was behind a green brocade curtain, itself the size of six floor tiles. It housed a one ring baby belling, a bathroom wall cabinet and three shelves. The pots and the bleach lived under the sink behind a dish rag suspended on a wire. Plates, mugs, towels, soap, washing powder, Dettol and the invariable Vim were under the shelves too. Up was the tea caddy and the sugar, like a skyline of Glasgow. We had no vent. The wallpaper peeled up in bubbles when subjected to steam, and since we valued the cheapness of all foodstuffs boilable, the wallpaper was never at ease. <laughs> it's the inside of the wooden horse, this, my mother said, her hands on the kitchen, her feet on the living room rug. You'd think they were bloody munchkins. <laughs> the living room had at least some room for manoeuvre. The ceiling was low enough for an adult to touch, but it had windows and a fire, the way a proper room should, and in the middle was the divan. From six o'clock at night, the divan opened up and let me go to bed. It filled the room with a thin strip round the edge for walking round and getting to the door. Hemmed in from six, 
until t she was bored or tired enough to get in as well, my mother listened to the radio or read books about film stars' lives. Grace Kelly, Shelley Winters, Bette Davis. It just wouldn't have occurred to me that she wanted anything else. From where I lay, curled in a pink wool blanket with a fire on, something to watch till I fell asleep, this was bliss. It was just the two of us, the only time in our lives things ever worked out that way. She had no letters, no visitors, no nasty surprises. She had a lot of dependable monotony under layers of umber and bottle and burial plot brown. She had a wonderful little rat cage of a room. Silverfish, roaches, and me, the ball and chain. Um, David Robinson recently uh, took me back to Salkitz to see the attic. And alas, there will be no Salkitz Janice Galloway tour because the attic is a discount store. <laughs> Almost everything in Salkitz is these days. Um, I guess the, the next wee bit of reading I chose was about my sister, the other person on the other side of me on the settee. Um, my mother was one kind of woman. My, <laughs> my sister was quite another. Um, this is just a, a brief portrait of Cora. I better have a drink before I do this one. <laughs> I'm not rushing you for time, am I, Richard? Is okay? Time. Okay. There's no excuse in this day and age for an ugly woman. <laughs> Cora could talk and put on her eyeliner at the same time. <laughs> you show me a woman that's ugly, she said, mouth gaping as she held the brush dead steady, one pinky cocked, and I'll show you a woman that's a lazy bitch. <laughs> she blinked twice, checked her work, and then turned full to me. Her face was blanked out with pan stick, even her lips, so she looked freshly dipped in orange wax. <laughs> Against this backdrop, her teeth looked yellow like a dog's. I knew they were false and wondered if they were sore. Ta-da! She sang. Come on, what do you think? Good, I said. It wasn't true. But then she had just kicked off. There was lots more to go. All I had to do was sit back on the end of the bed and shut up. She sat at the dressing table in an underskirt and a bra to get done up, all black straps and cleavage with red wheels where the elastic dug in. The least I could do was be encouraging. I'd watched it long enough to know the drill as well as she did. The pan stick came first. It was a greasy tan crayon slicked up from a navy blue Max Factor case, painted on in stripes, and then slapped around a lot to make it spread and settle. Everything else went on after this. The eyeshadow was next and it was always green. Black hair, green eyeshadow. It was, she said, smearing it on with a fingertip, a natural law. The mascara lived in a box of its own with a tiny brush like the one that took animal hair off your coat. She spat on the black stuff and rubbed the brush in till it was all clogged with black jam. 
You have to use it when it's thick, she said, making sure I understood. Then she blinked. She had to put on lots of coats if it was a big night out. The Bobby Jones dance hall in air was a three-coat job. It required lots of fluttering, eye-rolling and the occasional accidental tear. After that, liner thin and black flicked up at the sides like Maria Callas. A wee pencil only half the size of her thumb drew on her eyebrows. She only had half eyebrows anyway from too much plucking, so the pencil had to be sharp. Her hand very steady. That done, she sat back, poking her tongue into one cheek and checking the separate parts of her face in the mirror. There was always more. Powder on the sides of the nose, 4, 7, 11 behind the ears and on each wrist, rendered her ready for the frock. Lipstick and hairspray after the frock, she said. You think about it. Her best frocks were sleeveless with side zips, but the necks were intact circles that needed to be guided over the comb back carefully and then patted down into place before the zip was done up and the construction was complete. Thank God she never asked me for help with the zips. Touching was not something our family did. I could remain of wire, safe from the yellow bedspread as she hokey-cokeyed her way into a column of cloth arms first. She had four dresses, all patterned. There was the green one with lilac flowers, black with lotus blossom, purple with hydrangeas, and the navy with forsythia. The navy was the best. Cinched waist, corset tight, low cut with tiny wee puffed straps that she pulled over her shoulders to look like an Italian. Her stockings, hooked double to a dangly iron mongery of suspenders came next, followed by shoes, a handbag hardly worth the bother, elbow length gloves, and a dress watch round the wrist. Putting lipstick on in gloves couldn't have been easy, <laughs> but that was how she did it, kissing her lips in and out to check she had covered all eventualities, whatever she might do later with her mouth. Last thing was the beauty spot, with a licked tip of an eyebrow pencil, one full stop above the lip, and the other on the fat curve of her right breast where it rose a full moon over the edge of midnight satin. Like Rome, Cora did not build in a day. <laughs> but she was glorious to behold. A miracle of engineering and design from her cantilevered bra to her dead straight seamed. She could have no idea how wonderful she looked, I thought. How wholly free, chucking a swing coat over her shoulders and bolting for the door, the bus to air, the wide, wild world of the Bobby Jones dance hall. You'll no be late, my mother shouted. Cora, you listening to me? I'm saying you'll no be late. To the diminishing echo of her kitten heels, Cora didn't even answer. I imagined everybody in the block could hear that they would be looking out of their window to catch a glimpse of the mysterious lady running down our dreary little six-house lane towards the glitter ball shadows and whatever they concealed, but not Cora. She just kept going, like the wicked queen in Snow White, 
running to the dungeon despite herself, ignoring the bones under her feet, desperate to know the answers to fearful questions. She'll be for it one day, my mother always said, checking the window when there was nothing left to see. Honest to God, she'll be fun deed strangled up a close with her own nylons. <laughs> Who she was telling was anybody's guess. Next morning, the first thing I remember was a man's voice. I sat up listening and realized it was Sandy. Daft Sandy, Cora's boyfriend, was in the house first thing on a Sunday morning. And when I listened, he was talking, he was saying, it's no my fault, and honest to God, over and over. Cora's gonna be furious if he wakes her up, I thought, hiding under the top sheet. He better watch his step. One of my mother's curlers, the kind like a leg bone, only blue, was on the pillow where she had slept not long ago. I realized she was in there with Sandy, listening to him crying. This was one of the things that Sandy did. I thought it was because he was Cora's boyfriend. Usually Cora dumped him and he came to our house and cried and the mother made him eggs and eventually he went away. <laughs> sometimes Cora spoke to him and sometimes she didn't. One of these mornings and this morning, she didn't. I could picture the eggs from here and I listened harder, spitting and congealing in a frying pan. It wasn't a good picture. Suddenly Sandy roared blue murder. I don't know where she is, Mrs. Galloway, he howled. And there was a big sob rolling out with the words like a wave. Next thing, my mother appeared at the door in her dressing gown, her head decorated with pink and blue plastic under a covering of net. She looked drawn, but then she always did in the morning. He'll be away in a minute, she said. It's Sandy. I knew. <laughs> He's been here since long time looking for her, but she's not here. Cora hadn't come home. Turns out her and Sandy had had some kind of argument and she'd just up and left Sandy outside to Bobby Jones. He'd waited all night to see if she was coming back, but she didn't. I pictured Sandy, distraught, roaming the streets of air and shouting out her name and nothing happening. Just the odd cat keeping out of his way. He's drunk, she said. Look, you wait here and I'll try and get rid of him. She wasn't annoyed. She was distracted, holding her dressing gown shut at the neck like a comforter. She'd pulled out some of the curlers and one fat curl of her own hair had escaped the net in a perfect circle. Sandy cranked up again like a tractor, sudden and spluttery. I love her, he honked, desperate from the kitchen. <laughs> Honest to God, she's torture. <laughs> My mother rolled her eyes, sighed and went back through pulling the bedroom door shut behind her. By four o'clock, Sandy was away. There was just me and mother left, both dressed for the usual Sunday, except it wasn't. My mother did not choose her hat and go to church. She stayed in a penny and waited. We stood at opposite ends of the living room, looking out at the rain, making dimples on the pavement and gathering in the gutter. I could bloody choke her, my mother said. I can't be doing with this kind of upset at my age. I've got work to do. And she went back to the kitchen with her fists tight. The rain kept belting down. All I could see between the drops was Cora. She'd had a sleeveless dress on, slingback shoes, 
all that hairspray. I couldn't stop imagining her prone in a dirty puddle, mascara running in wavy lines while the rain fell in her open eyeballs, bouncing. I imagined one of her shoes might be missing, maybe a stocking, so I didn't want to imagine her neck. I kept my brain fixed on her feet, their red painted toenails scandalously on show. Cora couldn't run. Even Sandy said that. Cora couldn't swim and she couldn't run to save her life. Looking out of the window wasn't helping. I found my coloured pencils, the good set in the red zip case and drew some daffodils for my spring project. I told myself I couldn't be doing with this upset. I had work to do. I wore the yellow pencil down to the wood and there was still no sign of Cora, so I found a sharpener and just kept going. It was the best thing. Janice, it's a very funny book, but it um, prompted a lot of complicated emotions in me, and your mother um, really reminded me of my own mother. Um, and I, I wanted to get you to reflect a bit on the impact of tough working class West of Scotland life on women. Um, and you outline, in a sense, the impact, the way two women related, mother and daughter, but coped in a very different way. Um, tell us a wee bit more about that as such. I mean, because mm. it, it, it's, it's a book about women. There are men in it, but they flip round about it. Um, and it's the impact those circumstances had on them. Uh, and I don't know whether you're able to say very much, because I know you're probably going to do volume two on this one. But yeah. I'd quite like to know what happened to Cora, but I'm more interested, <laughs> I'm more interested okay. actually in your mother than I am in her. Okay. Although most people will go immediately to Cora. And you've come here tonight as Cora. Tell us a bit I've, more I've about I've come them. dressed as my sister. Mm. Uh, it's an act of homage. Well, when you talk about class, um, it's not that my heart sinks, but I didn't know the word <laughs> then. I didn't know we were part of anything called working class culture, and I sometimes doubt there is such a thing as working class culture. I was listening to Radio 4 the other day, and someone was talking about the gay community the church community and followed it through with the world community and I thought what the buggery is that? <laughs> the world community. You just stick the word community on the end of everything and it's supposed to exist. I'm not all that sure working class culture is one thing and of course the class structure has become such a nebulous concept anyway. Things have moved so drastically that whether or not that phrase in itself makes any sense this far post Marx I think is unlikely. So I, I didn't think of myself as a member of a class or the kind of things I did is different to what anybody else did. Everyone in the street was the same. Some of you will have been to Salkut's. You know it is not a melting pot <laughs> of different classes and of different class structures and things to do. Everybody was the same. So it never occurred to me there was another way to be or other things to aspire to. All I knew was the very people you mentioned, Richard, who were my mother and my sister. Now when you say it's a book about women, 
It's a book about women because, not from their choosing. It was a book about women who were dropped, dumped, or who ran away from, in my sister's case, who assiduously ran away from men. And our, our house resonated with absent mm. men. Mm. It doesn't mean they weren't there. And the other place we saw men was on the telly. Until I was 16, I thought men were behind glass. <laughs> thought that was where they lived and they were small. You know? um, it, took, it took quite a lot of coming to terms with real men out there in, in, in the real world as people and not just as fixtures on the street because there weren't any, certainly, in our house. And the only ones we did see were functional men who had nothing to do with us, like the doctors who were, who were downstairs. Um, so what my mother and my sister presented became very powerful because I saw them as what I would be. I cottoned on very quickly to the fact that we were all the same somehow. And my sister, Cora, was very in your face. She was larger than life. She was a force of nature. She enjoyed men. She dressed in a way that suggested she would like men to talk to her at the very least. Um, and she was very bossy and dogmatic. My mother, I mean, I, I remember my sister saying with enormous pride, I don't do domestic. No. My mother did domestic. Mm. That was who did domestic. My mother salted my sister's chips. It was an unbelievable layer of domestic that my mother went to. And if those were the choices, the domestic goddess with a permanent frown, because she didn't know where the next meal was coming from, or a sex goddess with a black, black heart, at least on the outside persona, someone who could drink a man under the table and who could probably fight him to death if she felt like it. I didn't see myself as being much copper <laughs> at either and found the whole of childhood a very confusing race between who was I gonna end up like. I know who I have ended up like, and it's not what you see in front of you. <laughs> I found myself writing a wee piece for Radio uh, 3 not long ago about night walks and the sentence about going on a walk. And I climbed up a hill and discovered I was crap at it. I was unbelievably bad at climbing hills. So I offered to stay at the foot of the hill and cook. I got such pleasure <laughs> from frying the lawn sausage and heating up the tatty scones and doing that kind of thing. I found myself writing the sentence, I am a caterer, not a warrior. My mother was the caterer. Mm. Cora was the warrior. And eventually, it's taken me till my 50s to know which side I fell on. I suspected it as soon as my son was born, which side I was going to fall on. I didn't see Cora as much of a role, mo <laughs> a role model in that regard. But it was, a t it was a tough thing to look at being small and thinking those were the two choices. Neither of them looked much cop. And the biggest class disadvantage we had wasn't a class disadvantage, it was a sex-wide disadvantage. We did not have effective contraception. What happened to women in the 40s and 50s was you fell pregnant, and as my mother kept saying to me, that was your life finished. <laughs> it was done. She didn't mean to be unkind even telling that to a child. It firmly was what she believed. Which also explains why, possibly, why there were so many absent men. If you live with a woman who's so angry about her life having finished carrying your children, maybe that's not the easiest thing in the world to live with. So there were a whole lot of conflicting 
emotions and messages in our house that came from, not from class, but from how I saw women might behave. Uh, can I ask you a wee question about how you made the book? I mean, the astonishing thing to me is that it's clearly seen and heard from the angle of childhood. There's no oh, yeah. kind of adult, and, but how did the adult Janus allow the child Janus to do, how did you not, I mean, how, do you, how did you put it off? Because it, it's about memory, but clearly written in a very sophisticated way by um, a literary artist. I mean, is there some trick or is it just, you just get yourself into some kind of zone and you don't interfere as an adult? Um, clearly, the, these things are conscious choices. Uh, it's not automatic writing. I know that there are, there are some people whose output would suggest that there is a degree of automatic writing involved. I'm not one of those writers whose output is that massive. I tend to wait till I've got something to say. That sounds awfully snotty, doesn't it? I'm taking that very personally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm slow. Let's put it that way. I'm a very slow writer. And uh, I was aware that I, I had begun writing this book without making a conscious choice about it. I thought I was writing a novel. It reads like a novel, I which is the great thing about it. Yeah, yeah and I'm, I'm pleased it reads that way. I, th I think novels are, are more approachable for people. And the, the, the problem with me that had always been with memoir, there are very few I've ever enjoyed. The ones I enjoy, I enjoy enormously. But it's a, such a loaded field to not just be someone talking about themselves. And how dull is that? It doesn't invite someone else in very readily. So I wanted to make my, I didn't want to make myself a character, but I found I was writing somebody who reminded me of me and who was getting weir with each page I was writing until I realized it was a child that I was writing about and that what I wanted to do, the person, the adult in it, was becoming more like my mother and I thought, sod it, you actually have to come out the closet with this one. And that's probably someone very like your mother or your mother. So I allowed myself that in-between territory of not committing to one form or the other to begin with. I gave them slightly different names sometimes if I found distancing from memory difficult. But when you talk about remembering, yes, we all have memories, but that's not writing or remotely like writing. Writing is highly structured. And when you write fiction, you're creating characters or you're distancing yourself further from the processes of your own psychologizing upon the life you've already led in order to make those characters. When you're fessing up that this is someone very like me, has any of you have had any truck with psychology or psychiatry, or even those of you who've watched it on the telly will know, the person you often know least is yourself. And I found it very difficult to go back into the memories and expunge any emotional reaction I had to them. I thought that was important because then I was going to get in the way. And the first duty of a writer is to get out of the way. Get out of the way, tell the story, and invite the readers in. You're the audience. You're the ones who have to later make sense of it. It doesn't matter what I think I'm writing. If you think something different and you make a logical sense of it for yourself, that's what counts. So I had to take as much emotional reaction out as possible. and found, astonishingly, I didn't have much. I was surprised at how little emotional reaction I had to my own childhood. And then I worked out why. I didn't know what I was feeling most of the time because nothing made any sense. Mm. The experience of childhood was, what? What just happened? 
And I think a lot of people can resonate with that. I don't feel this book is about me. That's why it's called This Is Not About Me. I feel it's about the confusion and the abject terror and the absurdity, the sheer nuttiness, the um, glorious not knowing things at times and the terrible not knowing things at times that composite everyone's childhood. So at some level, I just hope it is about childhood in general. It's the subject for now. Mm -hmm. We're asking ourselves why so many kids are shooting other kids, why so many kids are stabbing other kids. It's partly to do with certain kinds of breakdown of what we normally call family life, but it's far deeper than that. It's to do with child rearing, with how we regard children and how we see them in the world. And if we get it better, if you get rearing children better, you get everything better. I don't think there's anything more important than the careful rearing of children. Yet we reward the people who do it carefully, mm. shoddily. Finally, we a question before we throw it open. Um, have you had an ice cream with that red glop? They used to call raspberry on it at Galoni's in Alexandria Richard, recently. Richard, I am from Salkitz. Do you think it likely I will not have had an ice cream? <laughs> Does it still taste as good? Yes, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Um, Richard was asking me, be, be, before we came in, where, where memories came from. And um, sweeties play such mm. a large part of it. Mm. I was very tempted to read a five-minute sweetie bit to you, but you would all mm. have had toothache by the end of it. So I'm quite glad I missed that out. But yes, sweeties was one of the big prompts. Would you like to? Thank you very much. Now, we've got about uh, 20 minutes, 15 minutes for questions, if I can actually see. Can we put the lights up a wee bit? Thank you. And we do have wandering mics. Um, anyone have a go? Up at the back there. Thank you. Hi, Janice. Hi, yeah. Don't know if this is on. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. You made a rather cryptic comment at the beginning about the nature of your book. And to be honest, from some of the comments you've just made, I'm still left confused. Is, is this an autobiography? Is it a novel? Or is it a blend of fact and fiction? And also, how could you possibly remember so much by the age of just four? Very good question. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure there is somebody in here who studies this kind of thing and uh, could, could tell me that A, I don't, which is one possible answer, and I've invented it, that we have, I've imbued things that people have told me have happened to me with some kind of a movement, walking and talking, and they have become real memories. But where I started was by using family photographs. And if you look at a baby picture of yourself, do you have pictures of yourself as a baby? Yes? Right, but one of the astonishing things about looking at yourself as a baby is trying to find where anything you recognise is. You, it's impossible to think that you were that small. It's impossible to think that this is you. And I spent a lot of time gazing into the eyes. And I was trying to remember bits and pieces. Now, we, I don't remember any tiny baby stuff. But because my mother was so fixated on looking as though we were getting by. She wanted the family to look as though we were doing well. We often went to the photographers. People didn't have personal cameras. And we got taken to the photographers. And I've got some Lulus of pictures <coughs> of us sitting in the photographers. Um, and the photographers were in on this game of working class people wanting to look wealthier. So we're wearing peculiar clothes, things that don't look remotely normal to walk down the street in. All the women in the photos are wearing hats, for example, indoors. Um, I am sitting on a motor scooter in one picture, aged three, with a stuffed dove 
and there is a painted backdrop of Austria behind me. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> you don't forget that kind of thing. <laughs> so if that answers your question, that's the answer. Anyone else? Let's see. There, yep, yep. Thank you. <clears throat> Hello, Janice. Hello. Um, I don't write, but I would be very interested to know if you find it difficult or do you enjoy it or how, what kind of a process is it? For, for me personally, um, yeah. I hate every second of it with a vengeance. <laughs> I, that's a lie. I hate most of it. The bit I like is when you're making it better. The bit where you're vomiting up whatever is coming out of the deep, deep guts of your subconscious onto the paper is horrible to me because you're confronting your own inadequacy all the time. You've got the little devil or the little, uh, it's definitely a little devil on your shoulder. Those of you who do write who are closet writers, you don't need to put up your hand and admit to it. But those of you who do write will know this. There's somebody on your shoulder all the time saying, who wants to read this? This is rubbish. I never read such a load of nonsense in my... If your mother knew you had written that... There's, there's all this stuff going on all the time. And it's horrible fighting with that. And for some, I am terribly oral. Um, I was going to be a musician at one stage, and things seem to go in my ears and never go away. That's also part of the answer to your question. I've got a very retentive oral memory of things. And even when I couldn't remember the, you know, the sights of how things happened, I could remember people's voices from being very small. Um, and I could also remember um, sounds of people talking in other rooms and trying to make sense of it. But then coming to write it down, first drafts are always a jumble. And the best piece of advice I was ever given was call everything a shitty first draft. It's the only way you will ever get to the bottom of a page and feel brave enough to start a new one. And given that there are 354 in that, that's quite a lot of self-deluding. It's quite a lot of difficulty to fight your way through. But if you feel I've written enough now, you can go back and start trying to make it readable and better. And that is pure and solid applied craft. There is almost no emotion involved in that. The original drafting procedure is for me very emotional. I don't like that. It's a fight with your own inadequacy. When it comes to, I know I can make this better because my head works. That's the bit that's always worked the best the best <laughs> because my head works that's the part where I begin to feel involved with it so the answer is I, I find it very very difficult my dear friend Barbara Gowdy was on at the festival yesterday Did any of you go and see the Canadian writers wonderful Barbara Gowdy and she said she I, I ever since I started ever since I wrote my first book I keep asking myself can I stay in this job I can't do this again and then somehow it happens again and then somehow it happens again. I'll never be, I'm sorry, my new editor is here tonight and she's going to hear for the first time, I'll never be a career writer. <laughs> I tend to write when things well up enough inside to become unputdownable. Otherwise, I would sure as hell put some of them down. They start to, they take quite a while to boil up. I find it very difficult. Why do you ask? Are you a writer? No, but I'm a painter. Ah. Same kind mm. of thing. Uh -huh. um, sorry? Making no, stuff. No, we're is not difficult. hearing you now. If you want a oh, supplementary. Sorry. Um, uh, I, yeah. Yes, I find it the same kind of problem. Mm. Uh, I'm just working with a different media, really. Mm. Uh 
Um, but it's still a question of um, what you know and what you see and what you feel. Sure. Mm -hmm. and how, how are you going to use it and what do you do with it? Creating something out of nothing, making something out of thin air, is hard. Yes. I wish I could write and give up painting. And I wish I could think we should talk. If you could I tell me how to do that, okay, I'll write. <laughs> Isn't that what Hopper said? If he, if he could say, he wouldn't paint it. I suppose the other way around. There's one here. Yeah. Down here, thank you. Hi. This, is, this may be a bit muddled, <laughs> but, but one thing that uh, struck me um, was the importance of the primary paragraph, hmm. um, particularly the kind of metaphor of the emerging child. Um, the child emerges from the knees, oh, the but adult. is also between the pages of a book. Uh, that seemed to me kind of some, such a marvellous metaphor for the creation of what you're talking about, this character from nothing. But the other, the other perception that kind of sticks with me is the quiet mismaze and the quiet identification of the very voluble um, narrator. Mm -hmm. with this inner quietness that never comes out, mm -hmm. that never emerges, mm -hmm. and if it goes, goes into what? <laughs> um, and, and it's this, this uh, I suppose that's what, that's what was puzzling me about, this uh -huh. is about me, this is not about me. Uh -huh. Because me is, is it? That quiet centre that never gets spoken, underneath those appearances? Uh-huh. Well, this is also, of course, thank you, this is also why it's not about me. I, I think defining what me is, is the most extraordinarily difficult and abstruse thing. And in the end, I'm, I'm reaching an age where it's mattering less who me is. I've never been that interested in me. I'm interested in what's out there. I wouldn't be a writer otherwise. I'm assuming it's the same for my, the, the painter here. You're interested in what is out there, how it sounds, how it feels, the textures of it and the words, in my case, that I can make that try and make a picture of what I see happening. And to me, it's, it's always been allied. I think writers, of course there are different kinds of writer, but there is a kind of writer who is, is quite silent, quite nerdy, quite shy, keep themselves to themselves, but who would quite like to be friendly with people if they had the faintest idea how. And that's the best way I've ever found to write down what it's like to be inside here and say, is it like that for you? And people come back to you <laughs> and talk and ask you questions. By nature, I'm shy. I realize you're looking at me as though you find that slightly incredulous, <laughs> but by nature, I am quite shy. The thing is, I don't believe that shy people have a franchise over um, kind, other people's kindness. You can't expect other people to bring you out. You need to do something to sort out your own life and go out there. And uh, the way I found to do it when I was at my loneliest ebb, when I would be about 28, I started writing. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that being lonely and the starting writing happened at the same time. Um, I've recently been reading the essays of Montaigne. And Montaigne talks about writing as being what he did because his best friend died. He had no best friend anymore. He had no one to talk to. So he wrote everything, including what he ate, his impotence problems, uh, when he got fed up with his wife, what he thought about his kids, every, the kind of thing you would say to someone you felt very close to, he wrote. And to read these essays of Montaigne, these 
essays by a medieval Frenchman, as though he's right here next to you, is a staggering thing. And you realise he's found his friends, but he's found them in a very shy, long-distance way. And I've said this before and I'll say it again, writing a book is the nerdiest way in the world to make friends. It's the most shy, oblique way possible, but it seems to have been the way I found. So if that answers what me is, I suppose that's it. Lovely. Over there. Thank you. Hi, thanks. I just Hello. wondered as you were talking about as to why, why you did this, why now you said things come up for you, you've just got to go for it, you've just got uh -huh. to do it. What was it that you just had to do this? Whoa, jings. Um, there's a long answer and there's a short answer. The, the short answer is flippant, so I'll try and avoid it. Um, <laughs> the longish answer. Um, there was a pre-chapter in this book where I started writing about um, having my one and only child. I've only been pregnant once, only had a, had a, had a child, one child. And when I had uh, my baby, everything was different. Absolutely everything was different. And the, the pre-chapter started, let's save time and agree, children change everything. Accept them or deny them, they change the world. Um, and one of the things I did when I had my baby was I invited my sister, whom I hadn't seen for 15 years, to see the baby. I don't know why. I haven't the faintest idea why. I certainly didn't let her hold him. Um, but I invited my sister to come and see my son. And she told me all about her boyfriends and what she was doing at her work. And she was running a school and she, she, had, a, she had a very uh, successful life. And off she went and I, I never saw her again. And I think the juxtaposition of beginning what seemed to me to be my own family where I felt at home, <laughs> which was a new thing, and kissing goodbye the family that I'd come from came together in my head in a very strong way. Then my sister died in 2000. You asked me earlier what happened to them. My sister died of emphysema, the fags. Mm. Uh, she, she died in 2000 at the age of, I think, 62, or it might just have been 61. And I, I began to remember what she'd been like as a young woman. The bit of me that missed her remembered the funny young woman remembered the dressy, show-off young woman. And I started to write little bits of her down. And that, more than anything else, I think the death of my sister, the birth of my son, and the fact that my mother had died a long time ago, yet I still have the occasional conversation with her. And I started to write those down too, just like Montaigne, only somewhat less erudite, started to write them down. And so it was that piling up that came in the book. Ladies and gentlemen, we come to the end of this fascinating hour, but I'd like to uh, reflect on the first question myself. Um, it's not an easy book to categorize, but why do books have to fit into categories? Um, I chaired the Julian Barnes event a couple of weeks ago, and his book likewise bends all the categories, part memoir, part philosophy. This is an astonishing, versatile book. It, it, it bends all the genres, but I do urge you to buy it and Janice will now go to the tent and sign hundreds of copies. But please, before she goes, thank her for an enthralling hour. Thank you. <laughs>